Turn in your Bibles to Galatians 2, and um, we'll be looking at the rest of the chapter this morning. And the sermon's a little bit different than the regular sermons that we preach here. We'll be doing some um, context, keeping the context in Galatians uh, as we look and exposit Scripture. Um, But what I want to do also this morning, just so you know, is looking at the historical context of the 16th century Reformation. As Protestants, not Roman Catholics, we should understand what happened in that period of time uh, that made us Protestants. And Galatians chapter 2 in particular is one of the main catalysts of rediscovering of the gospel during the time of the Reformation. I say rediscovering on purpose because it wasn't discovered in the 16th century, in 1517. It was rediscovered because it had already been preached and taught since Genesis chapter 3. So I want to deal with both this morning. So just a little bit of context as we get into our, our scripture, a biblical context. If you remember, Paul's on his first missionary journey, declares the gospel to the cities in Galatia, People come to faith in Jesus through the gospel, and churches are planted. And both Jews and Gentiles are in these cities. Not long after these churches, the young churches are formed and growing, false teachers came preaching another gospel. Not the gospel in which Paul preached, which was the gospel which is, you you are saved, you are rescued, redeemed by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. They began to teach that in order to be a Christian, in order to be a good Christian, you have to be a Jew as well, it's particularly the rite of circumcision, which was the entrance into the Old Testament covenant law. So Paul immediately opens up his book dealing with these false teachers and false gospel, declaring his apostolic authority. We looked at that. Very important that you understand that Paul is saying that my apostolic authority, my apostolic calling, and my apostolic, uh, um, well, calling and, and, and authority comes from God himself. No man gave it to me. God called me. God rescued me. God sent me. And God gave me the ministry of gospel proclamation. Gospel authority. The second thing we see in the scripture in the first two ver- uh, chapters is the authority of the apostolic message. goes to say that if Paul has been called and summoned and, and, and authoritatively sent by God himself, then the message he declares, not only the message he spoke, but the scriptures he writes, is also authoritative. So apostolic authority, apostolic message, it's authority. And then Paul defends it in chapter 1, verse 6 through chapter 2, verse 15, declaring the false teachers in verse, seven and, uh, verse 8 and 9 of chapter 1, a curse, let them go to hell for preaching a wrong gospel. Is that important that you preach the gospel that it's right? And he, and he gives him their, his itinerary. I, I didn't go to Jerusalem right away. All this to show that his apostolic authority, his calling, his mission, his message is from God himself. And by the time we get to chapter 2, verse 3, And chapter 2, verse 12, we're introduced to what they were teaching. There were Jewish people saying that you, as I said, you have to be circumcised. You have to add to your faith in Jesus circumcision as a right into the ceremonial and uh, mosaic, excuse me, law. Right? In order to be justified, to be made right, to, to be forgiven and to be just and righteous before God, you have to add law. It says in chapter 2 that when they took Titus, who was a Greek, to Jerusalem, where all the false teachers were coming from, they didn't force Titus to be circumcised. They didn't want to give one credence 
to the false teachers saying that, look, Titus was circumcised, now he's a full Christian. And Paul says in verse 5, they did not circumcise Titus to put him under the law. Why? To preserve the truth of the gospel. The second time this false teaching, the adding works to faith, shows up is with table fellowship. We looked at that last week. Paul had visited Antioch, a very multi-ethnic church, witnessed God's grace, God's mercy uh, through the gospel, that they were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and he was eating with the Gentile believers. Very significant. Jewish people associated eating meals with fellowship with God. And Peter understood through a vision and through experience that God was saving, rescuing non-Jews through the same gospel, of believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. And no one is unclean once they are in Christ. But he saw Jewish folks coming from Jerusalem. And rather than eat with his uncircumcised brothers, he did what? He removed himself, chapter 2, verse 12. From before, certain men came from James. He was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself. Look at why. Fearing the circumcision party. And he was confronted. Peter was confronted by the Apostle Paul. Apostle Paul confronts Apostle Peter. Another display of the apostolic authority that Paul is saying he has as he confronts Peter. He says, you're not walking in step with the gospel. Verse 14. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step, that's orthopedio, that's walking uh, straight line, in step with the gospel, I said to Cephas, that's Peter, before everyone, if you, now listen, if you, Peter, are the Jewish folks, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? In other words, you are a Jew by birth, You've been rec- you have received the law, But you know that the law didn't justify you. You know that Christ justified you, just like the Gentiles. Why are you withdrawing yourself? You were saved the same way, not through the law, but by grace in Jesus Christ. Making Gentiles live like Jews or to take on the law as a burden to be a Christian is doing something that the Jewish people didn't even do because they had to be justified by faith alone. And that's where we pick up the story. Galatians 2, verse 16, hear the word of the Lord. All right, verse 14, I, I, I confronted him, not walking in truth of the gospel. Why you like, uh, uh, like, uh, live like Gentile, being justified by, by, by faith alone, not like a Jew trying to earn it. How can you force the Gentiles to then earn their salvation? We ourselves are Jews by birth, verse 15, and not Gentile sinners. I'll get to that. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Why? Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But, verse 17, if in our endeavor... To be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners. Is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For, for, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh or in the body I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. 
For if righteousness was through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. May God add a blessing to the reading of his holy word this morning. So, not a, not a really nice outline. Uh, this passage took me, uh, it was just, it's a tough week. It was a tough passage to really work through. So, hopefully we'll get through it today with no problem. But simply, four things. Justification declared what it is. We looked at that. We'll hit it again. Justification is denounced what it is not. Justification demonstrated its union with Christ. It's so important. And finally, justification directed, because Paul now, is, his whole life is directed by what? Love. Okay? That's where we're at. Verse 16 again. We know that a person not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. We also know, we also believed in Christ in order to be justified by faith, and not by works of the law, because no other works of the law, no one will be justified. Now, notice that, that the explanation and, and, the, and the clarification that Paul is declaring here is within the context of this contrast between faith plus works and faith alone. That, that's, that's the, that's the uh, context of what Paul is saying, right? So he's saying there's a doctrine that I am preaching in my apostolic authority that says you've got to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and him alone, and there's some that are teaching you that you've got to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and add works of righteousness to your life in order to be saved. That's what we call the biblical doctrine of justification by faith in Christ alone. That's what Paul was preaching. Calvin said it this way. It is entirely by the intervention of Christ's righteousness that we obtain justification before God. This is equivalent to saying that man is not just in himself, just, justice in himself, but that the righteousness of Christ is communicated to him by imputation. We'll talk about that. While he is strictly deserving of punishment, end quote. Justification, again, I want to make it clear, is a legal term. It has to do with the person's right standing, righteous, just standing before the bar of God's justice. In order to be declared right before God, I've got to be righteous, just. I'm not righteous. I'm actually a guilty sinner. So how can I or you justify ourselves before God. How can we be forgiven of our sins, our violation, our our rebellion against God, and right before God, just before God, righteous before God? That's the important question that justification answers for us and will this morning. Three things I mentioned it. I'll mention quickly here. He mentioned justification, verse 16, three times in three different ways. First is plainly taught. A person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. It can't get any more clear than that. Right? People criticized the reformers when they added the word alone, but that's exactly what Paul is talking about. How does one get right before God, justified before God? It's through faith in Jesus Christ. A man cannot keep the law, will not keep the law in order to be justified, declared forgiven, and somehow be right, righteous, perfect, holy before God. It's not going to happen. It's plainly taught. It's only through faith. It's also personally received. Paul goes on, talking to Peter. He says, so we also, Peter, and all the other Jews that are following in Peter's footsteps, so we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. So no matter how many sword drill, Bible sword drills you won growing up, right? what church attendance, or money you give, or Bible reading you do, how early you get up, all that stuff, all that stuff is not how you become justified, right? 
It's through faith in the person of Christ. Plainly taught, personally received. And look at this pervasive scope. Because, he ends verse 16, by works of the law, who will be justified? No one. You know, it's a blessing. If you grew up in a Christian home and you've heard the gospel and you've seen it demonstrated in the lives of your parents, man, praise God. Praise God for that. There's a, there's a huge blessing in that. But not one single thing, not one single thing will help you in your justification. Not one. Not your moral life, not your moral backward, background. Add one shred of righteousness in order for you to have a right standing before God. It's by faith in Jesus Christ. The Judaizers were adding works of righteousness to their justification, which is not only impossible and false, but listen, if you think you have to add your something to the righteousness and justification that God offers you, it is a slap in the face of the sufficiency of Christ's perfect life and his atoning death. It is a slap in the face of Christ's sufficiency, his perfect life, obedience to the law, completely done, and atoning death on the cross. I mean, do we really think that somehow, some way that you and I could live in such a way that that mirrors or adheres to the life of Christ, that somehow we can earn, somehow we can work, somehow we can merit the requirement of righteousness needed our good works needed to live in righteous standing before a holy God. If you think you can, you're wrong. If you think you have to, you have to merit, you have to work in order to make a right standing before God, that's not good news. Okay? Listen, you have to have faith in Jesus Christ, but then you have to keep running and keep working and work as hard as you can, and maybe someday you'll get there. Welcome to the good news of the gospel. Like, really? That's not good news to me. Now, I want to I take a side, I want to go sideways here a little bit and talk about the historical context of defending the gospel during the Reformation. I'm not here, let me say right up front, to bash Roman Catholic folks or people. My mom is involved with the Roman Catholic Church. She loves Jesus. But what I'm here to do is declare to you what's coming from the Vatican, the actual official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church laid down in the Council of Trent in the 16th century, affirmed today. They had the same kind of idea, the same kind of thinking that was here in Galatians. You have to have faith and you have to have works, and together you become righteous. So the Roman Catholic Church today teaches and taught then and has taught that justification, right standing before God, begins at the sacrament of baptism as an infant. It removes original sin. It returns a person to the state of innocence. And when you participate in the sacramental systems and you perform works of mercy, you're accruing more merit, more righteousness, more justification, or at least toward justification. Okay? That's what they believe. They have two kinds of merit. One's called condign merit, which is obligatory merit. There's congruous merit, which is a fitting merit, recognizing of a reward. I don't want to get into bogged down on that too much. But when a person has, when a person does congruous merit, they are now able to do merit that has been granted to them by grace, that which is called condign merit. Okay? Very few people have enough condign merit 
to have a righteous standing before God, the, the intrinsic righteousness that a person needs, the merit that a person needs, in which God is obliged, obligated. And unless there is condign merit in the person working toward this meritorious act, there cannot be any justification. Okay? These merits are done with grace, and they, and, 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 and they, and they somehow lead to justification. So, in their system of faith plus works, God justifies a sinner, very important. When God justifies a sinner, he's not counting or imputing someone's righteous who is not righteous, as we would say, but someone who actually, because of merit, because of his condign merit, because of the workspace connected with their faith, they are actually truly declared, you are now just. You are now righteous in and of yourself because of this merit. No one, very few people can do that, right? So they have this thing called super, super arrogation merit. I know that, maybe not heard that word before. That's merit that highly, highly spiritual people, saints, Jesus, Mary, and some of the saints of the Roman Catholic Church, they do so much condign merit, they do so much merit that there's extra. If you've never heard this before, it may sound crazy to you, but I'm just telling you what they teach. This extra merit. Extra merit, what does it do? It goes into the treasury of merit. Okay? There's a treasury of merit. And in order to be righteous, you have to have enough merit. And there happens to be a place in heaven available to people who have died and people who are alive. People who have died and went to purgatory where they're purging their sins away. Right? And getting ready for heaven because they don't have enough righteousness to enter the kingdom. They're in purgatory and they're purging their sins, you can actually take from the treasury of merit and apply extra merit that people had extra, didn't need enough to go into heaven to people here on earth through penance. Um, We'll get into that in a second. But in the Reformation, one of the things that really fired up Luther, Calvin, and some of the others was you can actually buy indulgences releasing this treasury of merit for people who already died. Famous line was, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul out of purgatory springs. All right? You buy these indulgences, and, and you're forgiven of sin, and, and the releasing of this merit that's in the treasury of merit, okay? Um, and it, it, that just became a major, major problem, and that's what forced the Reformation, part of it, what forced the Reformation, Reformation into, into place. So let me just be really, really clear here. The Catholic Church does not teach that salvation is by works. That's not what they teach. What the Catholic Church teaches, you need to have faith in Jesus Christ. His work on the cross is death, burial, and resurrection, but that's not enough. You have to also add enough merit so that you yourself intrinsically become righteous before God. And if you don't have it, they'll offer it to you through the treasury of merit as you await in purgatory for that intrinsic righteousness, okay? The question in Galatians and for the reformer, even for us today, is this. Is Christ's perfect life, his atoning death and resurrection from the dead, sufficient to justify us, to become righteous enough so that we can go into God's presence and be reconciled to God? Or do we need to participate in some sort of meritorious action to gain righteousness? Okay, that's the question. 
And here's something even deeper. And, and you got to put your thinking caps on today. If CDs will be for free, you can pick one up. But here's another question. How? How does the merit, the, the righteousness of Christ, the work of Christ on the cross, how does that work come to sinners? How does his work get appropriated to my life, to your life? Paul makes it clear, all of Scripture I think is clear. The righteousness that you have that justifies you, that makes you right and just before God is an alien righteousness. It is someone else's achievement, not yours. It is counted, imputed righteousness, not infused as somehow working with God. Because again, that's not good news. The Bible teaches us that we are by faith in Christ completely forgiven of all our sins, and you have the total, by faith in Jesus, the total righteousness of Jesus Christ to your account because of what the Bible says is imputation or what's being counted toward your record. Galatians chapter 3, verse 6. Just as Abraham believed God, there's the faith, it was counted to him, imputed as righteousness. Just, right before God, by faith, Galatians 3, 6. Philippians 7, Paul says, Whatever I gain, I count as loss for the sake of knowing Christ, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but which comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Okay? So Christ has done it all. All the meritorious works needed was done solely by him. His perfect life has been notoriously given to me by faith. And here's something to think about. The Roman Catholic Church, again the church from the Vatican, says that the idea of imputation, accounting someone's righteousness that's not yours to you, is what's called um, a legal fiction. In other words, if God says, hey Lou, you're a wicked sinner, you're, you're you deserve to go to hell, but by faith, your righteousness now is Christ's righteousness, not yours. That somehow God's a liar because he's not dealing the truth. He's looking at some sort of fallacy. You're not righteous, and him to declare you righteous, he must be a liar. It is a, it is a legal fiction, okay? You can't give someone else something someone else has earned. If you take that theory to its full conclusion, well, that's how the treasury of merit works. Right? I mean, if all the saints have done so much that they got extra stuff laying around the house, and you go and you're like, can I have some of that? And, and you're like, yeah, you give me $400, I'll give you a couple of years off of purgatory. Here you go. Now, the righteousness that's been someone else's is now applied to my life, and I get out of purgatory. So they believe in imputation, but only when it comes to the treasury of merit. Luther had a wonderful quote to help us understand what imputation means. Simul justice, simul justice et peccator. Simul comes from simultaneously just et and peccator sinner. We are simultaneously just and sinner. I am just before God. I am righteous before God. That's my position. I'm, I'm that way because of Christ, his work of forgiveness, I'm righteous before him because the merit that, that has been gained, the righteous life that has been gained, has been gained in Christ. His work has been imputed to me by faith. And yet I know I'm a sinner. Just ask my wife. I don't have to overcome the problem of sin 
before I am justified because I'm not resting on my work. I'm resting on the finished work of Jesus. Okay? Follow me so far? Okay. What it is not. So if that's the case, Paul says in verse 17, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, that's the way we're going to go, we too, Peter, Jewish folks, were found to be sinners. I would add verse 15, pagan sin, you know, he called them Gentile sinners. We are found to be like Gentile sinners. Is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. Lots of different ways to interpret that passage. One is to say that uh, um, Paul is saying that while I'm seeking to be justified in Christ and I found out we're a sinner like the Gentile sinner, then, then, then Christ is a minister of sin. Just like Moses delivered the, the, the law, not saying that Christ is a sinner, but just as Christ, uh, excuse me, Moses delivered the law, Christ is delivering uh, justification. And if we believe him, we run to him, we, we embrace him, it leads us into sin because we're not holding to the law anymore. Okay? We're not holding to the law anymore. And something similar to that is, is people are saying, and I, and I think this is true, I think Paul, which he loves to do in his letters, is, is thinking, what's going to be, I can't be there, they can't call me on the phone. Hey, let's call the Apostle Paul, let's, let's Skype him in, let's FaceTime him in, let's find out what he's saying. So Paul's thinking, what, what, what are some of the objections that they're going to they're come up with as they read this letter I wrote to them? I think there were some people in Galatia who were arguing that the doctrine of justification by faith alone, apart from works, was dangerous. It weakens us a moral sense of responsibility, and it is an encouragement, actually, to breaking the law, do whatever you want. And somehow that makes Jesus responsible for our sin. They don't understand the doctrine of sin, right? I mean, who's to blame for our sin? We don't blame God. We don't even blame the law. James said we're own sinful because we are tempted and lured and enticed by our own desires and when it gives full uh, it's conceived it gives birth to sin paul had the same argument in romans 6 so he lays out romans 1 through 5 especially at the end of 5 talking about the grace of god the love of god the mercy of god the abundance of grace of god and then in chapter 6 he says is somebody going to be there when they read this letter in rome and they're going to say this what shall we say then are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound by no means How can we who died to sin still live in it? Certainly not, he says here in Galatians. As if somehow God's grace, his abundant mercy, his free gift of justification by faith alone is the cause for my guilt and my sin. God can't be responsible for our sin. When I became a Christian and when I sin, it's not God's fault. In other words, if someone who professes Jesus Christ and yet they're living a lifestyle that says, we talked about this before, the lifestyle kind of just contradicts their, 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 their confession. It proves they don't understand the gospel, that it's still in rebellion of God. There has been no justification. According to the Judaizers, this was precisely the problem with Peter and Paul. They were living like Gentiles, eating with Gentiles. They were ignoring the law, in a sense, eating unholy food, according to them, with uncircumcised Gentiles. Really? Is, is Christ making you do that? People say that today. If God justifies bad people, why bother doing anything good? 
That's a complete misunderstanding of the gospel of justification. Justification is not a scheme in which a man's position, status has changed while his character has been untouched. That was a concern in the Roman Catholic Church as well. That these reformers are preaching justification by faith alone and that it will lead to a life of sin. And in fact, to be honest with you, and I will be today, they have a verse. Turn in your Bibles, if you have one, to James chapter 2. We're going to hit this head on. Look what it says. Now, James chapter 2 is written by the same James who said in chapter 2 of Galatians, gave the right hand of fellowship to Paul. Remember? Paul and Barnabas. What was Paul and Barnabas doing? They, they said, grace has been upon these two men. They're preaching the gospel of justification by faith. And James in chapter 2 of Galatians says, we gave them the right hand of fellowship. That's this James. This is the same James who said in chapter 15 that you don't have to live by the law. The Pharisees were saying you've got to get circumcised. James says, no, that's not necessary. That's this James. James writes this in chapter 2, verse 24. You see, excuse me, you see that a person, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, I got both verses up there. Yeah, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Right? We just went through this verse. Now, when you look at that, you say, oh, well, wait a minute. These two apostles need to get together in a room somewhere because somebody doesn't know what they're talking about. Right? It looks like a contradiction. It is not. A couple things. First, realize this. James is writing his letter. Paul is writing his letter. Two completely different contexts, different issues, different questions, and different problems. Two completely different contexts. We believe strongly in context here. Okay? Paul in Galatians and in Romans, when he talks about justification by faith alone, is combating and going against legalism. We've been seeing that all throughout Galatians. That by faith and good works done in obedience to God, then one can become justified. James is dealing with a different issue called antinomianism, which is against the law. James is combating a superficial faith that has no real effect on a life of a believer. There were people in that church that were saying they had faith, and they lived like the devil himself. Two totally different issues and questions that are being answered by these people and uh, addressed and answered. Okay? Two different issues, number, number one. Number two, Paul and James use these passages, and they use words differently. That's why you got to be careful, because different people use different words in a slightly different manner. Okay, let me tell you why. Let me tell you how. In the Apostle Paul's writings, when he talks about faith, almost all the time, he talks about a living faith. He talks about genuine faith. He talks about a working faith. He doesn't address in his letters fake faith or dead faith. That wasn't the issue in Galatia or in Rome. Paul understood the difference, uh, knew the connection between justification by faith alone and works. That famous verse that we love to quote, Ephesians 2.8. By grace you've been saved through faith. It's not your doing. It's a gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one would boast. Then he goes on to say, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works. God prepared beforehand to walk in. Galatians chapter 5. We'll get to that in a few weeks. 
He says this, verse 6, In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, law or following the law for justification or not, counts for anything but what? Only faith working through love. He understood the only kind of faith that counts toward justification or for justification is the one that bears the fruit of love. It is a transforming faith. It never goes without transforming fruit. But James uses the term faith in, in his letter, James, in the, in the, in the book uh, epistle James, with two different categories. Paul talks about faith, believing faith, almost all the time. James is saying, look, there's a bunch of you that believe you have faith, but you don't show anything. Can that faith actually save you? Okay, verse 17 of James chapter 2. There's genuine faith, there is dead faith. Look at James chapter 2, verse 17. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. See, he's, he's contrasting real faith and dead faith. Paul doesn't do that. Verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith. How? By my works. So when James says a person is justified by works and not by faith alone, he means not by faith which is alone, but which shows itself through love, through works. Okay, you follow me so far? I hope so. Let me, he talks differently about the word faith, he, uh, differently about uh, justification as well. So Paul, in his writings, follow with me, this is really important. Paul, in his writing, used the word justification in Romans and Galatians. We've been studying that in a very strict, legal, forensic way before the throne, cosmic courtroom of God. James used the word justification, but he broadens it to talk about the totality of man's life. And I'm going to show you that. Okay? I'm going to show you that here in James. Okay? So look with me in James chapter 2, verse 21, before the famous verse 24 passage. James chapter 2, verse 21. He's talking about dead faith. He's talking about a live faith. He's talking about justifying faith. He gets to verse 21, and he says this, very interesting. Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Verse 22. You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed, brought to maturity, by his works. That's what the word means. So, so Abraham's faith was matured because he acted on what he already believed, past tense. You know, I know that. Keep reading. Verse 23. And the scripture, James says, was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him, imputed to him as righteousness, as justice. So, Notice what happened here. You, you need to really see this. First, in chapter 2, verse 21, James is very specific about Isaac. Offering up Isaac. That happened in Genesis 22. He's going back to the Old Testament. Genesis 22. That was 30 years or so after, after, he offered up Isaac after Genesis 15, where God justified Abraham by faith. Okay? In other words, James brings up Abraham's actions and works of faith first, but then goes back to the day in which Abraham was justified by faith alone. Clearly, what he's saying is James sees Abraham's faith and the demonstration of his faith as proof that Abraham was justified by faith alone. 
Genesis 22, Genesis 15. Genesis 15 comes first. Abraham believed God and he was justified. Abraham then 30 years later, in his justifiable faith, did the acts of works and offered his son up. See that? Paul will talk about it in Romans 4. James is using the whole life of Abraham to prove his point. That faith without works is dead. Abraham was not saved by faith plus works, but a faith that works. And the offering up of Isaac was proof of his justification in God. Works is not part of our justification. It's the result. Action is the proper fruit and can only be demonstrated and only demonstrate faith's genuineness. Does that, I hope that makes sense. So reformers would say this. We are justified by faith alone, but a faith that justifies is never alone. Is never alone. So are we justified by works and faith? Well, yes, but not in the legal forensic sense. It's a demonstration of our genuineness of faith. Now, let me try to explain that a little bit more for you. Negatively instead of positively, but let me try this. When someone is found guilty of a crime, a crime has been committed, and someone is found guilty of a crime, and all the evidence pointed toward them being guilty of a crime, are they going to jail because of the evidence, or are they going to jail because of the crime? They're going to jail because of the crime. The evidence just points to the crime, right? Judiciously, before the justice bar of God's throne of perfection and, 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 and a courtroom of God, we are forensically and legally justified, made righteous through only through the work and the merit of Jesus Christ alone. But if that happens in your life, the evidence of the crime will follow. It will follow. This is not hair splitting. This is not hair splitting. Works as evidence is very different than works as merit. Very different. Eternally different. Righteousness imputed, counted to me, or having to work to gain merit for my righteousness is very different. When the gospel, justification by faith alone in Christ alone, does works, it's done out of love. Faith plus works justification is done out of fear. When the gospel, justification by faith alone, does works, it's done in joy and, and gratitude and thanksgiving. The other one is done out of obligation and requirement. That's why Paul talks about going back from justification by faith alone to justification plus works as slavery in verse 4. Tracking with me? Okay, I hope so. Verse 18. And if I rebuild what I tore down, I, I prove myself to be, a, to be a, a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law so that I might, what? Live to God. Paul said that to go back to justification by faith, to go back on justification by faith, is an, an effort is to rebuild old structures of justification by law. I'm not going back. I'm not going back on what I know to be true. I'm not going to rebuild. I'm not going to be proved or demonstrated as a transgression. I already know that we're saved by faith alone. To go backward to cancel the work of Jesus, death on the cross. I'm not putting salvation in reverse. 
if the Galatians did that, and I think some Jews were urging them, listen, all right, keep your doctrine, but you got to add, you got to rebuild, you got to go back and rebuild the work of the law as necessary for the gospel. And he says, look, if you do that, you become lawbreakers all over again. You're rebuilding a system of, of legalism. Number three, justification, union with Christ. This is so, so precious. Okay? For through the law, I die to the law so that I might live to God. Verse 19 again. To die to the law. Notice it wasn't the law that died. It is Paul that died. He died with respect to the law. He's not, he's not under its power anymore. He's no longer under its power. Again, Calvin said this. To die to the law is to renounce it and to be freed from its dominion. Dominion. So that we have no confidence in it and it does not hold us captive under the yoke of slavery. End quote. The penalty of our sins, the penalty of violating the law had already been carried out. The law's demand of death was satisfied in the death of Jesus Christ our Lord. It was our failure of the law and the curse of the law that was put, that put Jesus to death in the cross in the first place. He didn't die for himself, he died for us. And when Christ died, Paul died too. Paul died to the law and the death of his substitute, Jesus the Christ. But Paul is saying the law has no longer mastery over me. It no longer stands in condemnation of me. He died to the law. He's not condemned. Romans 8.1 For there is no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's a historical fact. Remember, human beings, we are sinful people. The law is holy and just. The law, though, cannot give to us something that was never meant to give to us. The law was never meant to give us grace, to give us mercy, to give us justification. The law was meant, one of the reasons the law was given, and we're going to get into it in a few weeks, was for a diagnostic purpose. Some of many of you know I've, I've had hip surgery. And I had both done. When I went to the doctor for the very first time and they took x-rays of my hips, I remember waiting in the office and the door opened up and there was two doctors who said, will you come with us? And I'm thinking, oh, I don't know. Yeah, I guess so. They're like, we want to show you something. I go in the back and they had, you know, where they put the x-rays up, pops the x-rays up and he says, see all that? He points all this white, especially in my left hip. I said, yeah, I don't know what I'm looking at. It's white, I don't know. That's arthritis. I said, oh, okay. You need a total hip replacement. I was 47. I'm like, really? Yeah. I said, should we get an MRI? He laughed. So if you're medical here, you know that's funny because there's no need to it. It's, everything's right in the x-ray. It's like, we don't need anything else. See that? We know what your problem is. It's diagnostic. It wasn't the cure. I had to go in for surgery. It wasn't the cure. It, it was diagnostic. It, it showed me the problem. The law is diagnostic showing me my sin. It is the grace of Jesus Christ that is the cure. It is the grace of Jesus Christ that sets me free to live to God. Verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me in the life. I now live in the flesh. I live by faith, not by works, by faith in the Son of God. On the cross, Jesus was punished for all my sins, all your sins, of all people through all human history who would ever believe. As he died, I died. I was crucified. I, I rose with him. You rose with him. We see that in Romans 6. We are baptized, immersed into his death. We are immersed into his resurrection. We are now to walk in newness of life. Not that we died as an atonement, but in his atonement, we were there. 
It is no longer I who live. I died to self. I died to the law. I'm alive now in Christ. And the reason the doctrine of justification by faith alone does not promote sin is that justifying faith is what gets us into union with Christ. We become new people. We get into Christ by faith. Everything that he's accomplished becomes ours. The very intimate relationship, the very union we have with Jesus is embedded in justification by faith alone. It is if we lived that perfect life and died that painful death. It is if we were buried in a tomb and raised to heaven. I am dead. The old has passed away. All things have become new. I'm not the person I used to be. It is no longer I who live. It's Christ who lives in me. The reality of that union, let that sink in. I don't live under the law of demands. I, I'm in a relationship with Jesus by faith. I trust him. I, I seek to please him. I seek to love him, to honor him, to worship him. My life is centered now. I don't live for me. I live for him. I used this illustration once before, but it's, it's so good. Suppose your life as a little boy or a little girl, you, you wanted to be in the Olympics, maybe on a swim team, and you worked really, really hard all your life. And as you're graduating college, you get a phone call from the Olympic swim team uh, uh, and says, look, you're in. The Olympics in two years, you're in. You made the swim team. You're going to do two years of rigorous, rigorous work. You're going to work very, very hard. And you know what else is going to happen? Over the next two years, everything you did, from the foods you ate to the places you lived, where you worked, even things done in your leisure and your hobbies will be subjected to that goal, winning the Olympics on the swim team. Everything centered around that goal. To trust in Jesus Christ, be united with him, is to begin an altogether new life centered on Christ. We relinquish our old life and turn to Christ for life. We... We are obedient to God. We, we, are, we are now subjecting all our life to him. It's not, it's not external. I have to do this. It's internal. It, it, it's spiritual. King David said this about following the Lord, obeying God. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing in the heart. The commandments of God, Lord, command me. What should I do? Where should I go? How should I act? Is pure. His commands are more desired than gold, fine gold, sweeter than honey, dripping of the honeycomb. The reason David delighted in the commands of God is because he understood grace. He understood mercy. When we are made just, righteous for God as a free gift, it changes everything about my obedience to him. If I come in contact with the cure... I will not be the same. When genuine faith has come, we are justified by faith alone. Works will follow. And here's really important you need to see. It's not that we disregard the moral standard of God. It's not like we throw everything out as some would do. The difference is in the new covenant, we're justified by faith. We have what? A new nature, a new work. Our hearts have changed from cold, dead demanding law, we have now a heart 
that wants to obey, that wants to follow, because we understand justification by grace alone, through faith alone. It's even in the Old Testament. This isn't New Testament stuff. Ezekiel 36, new covenant. I'll give you a new heart. In the new covenant, you'll get a new heart, a new spirit. I'll put in you. I'll remove the heart of stone, give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you, and I will cause, God says, I will cause you to walk in my statutes and carefully to obey my rules. Listen, when God justifies, when God gives us new life, he gives us regeneration. He gives us a new heart. Have you experienced a new heart of God where the commands of God, obedience to God is not burdensome, John says. I want to please my Lord. I want to love my Lord. I want to follow my Lord. I want to worship my Lord. I want to obey my Lord because of all that he has done for me on the cross. There's a huge difference between the two. Have you experienced a heart change? It's the evidence of God's grace. If you call yourself a Christian and nothing has changed in your life, you need to do what the scripture says. Examine yourself. Test yourself. Being justified by faith doesn't mean I live in a disobedient life. Actually, the, the contrary. My union with Christ propels me to live my life for him, to have his life in me lived out through me. No longer I live as Christ who lives in me. And now by faith, not by works, I live for a new master, the son of God. I obey him out of love, not law, not fear. Love fulfills the whole law, Paul will say. Because there's been regeneration. There's a new heart. There's a new spirit. There's a new nature. Been justified. And finally, look, directed by love, we'll go to the communion table. I've been crucified with Christ. No longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life now I live and live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God. Who? Who loved me. Who loved me and gave himself for me. Who's writing this? The Apostle Paul, the really high Pharisee who, who knew his Bible, who murdered and persecuted Christians, who never really lived for God, never really loved God. He was being very moral for himself, not for God. He's obeying God without being justified. He's obeying God to get a reward. What can he get from God? Not out of sheer love for God himself. Now that he's justified, now that he's accepted by faith in Christ, Paul has a brand new motive for obedience, and that is much more pure and powerful. It's called love. He wants to live, well, look what it says, for the one who loved me and gave himself for me. It is the love of God that's fueling this whole thing. I mean, think about it. Why would God give to you and to me his grace? Why would the Father send his only begotten son to be crucified on the cross, to bear our shame, to absorb in himself the wrath we deserve? Love. Why would God impute our sin on his spotless son and then impute his righteousness to undeserving and many times unappreciated sinners like me? Love. Second Corinthians 5, For our sake the Father made him, Jesus, to be sin. That's our imputation of sin upon him, who knew no sin, so that in Christ we, you and I, might become, imputation, the righteousness of God. It's not some impersonal force or some sort of, some, some cosmic law of nature that compelled Christ. It was the love of God. It, it was the love of God. It was unmerited, immeasurable, infinite love of God that sends Jesus to the cross. 
Not for his sin, but for ours. Now let me get real personal before we close. Paul invites you this morning. Can you say with Paul, Christ loves me? You can trust Christ because he loves you. It is good to remember that God loves everyone, that he is passionate for the world. But it's also good to remember this morning, right here as you sit here, that you can be justified by faith when you understand and know that God loves you. That Jesus died on the cross. He paid the price for your sin. He gave himself for you on the cross so that his life with all its present and eternal benefits can be yours. That his life can be lived out through you. Verse 21. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for what? No purpose. Those who want to save themselves, justify themselves, want to earn it, legalism, reject the grace of God and establish their own right relationship with God by means of following some sort of rules and regulation. In doing so, they absolutely deny the sufficiency and the significance of Christ's death on the cross and rather rely on their own justification for their own salvation. He said, then you die for no purpose. Faith, though, is the opposite. It's the surrender of Christ. It's accepting that you're a sinner. He's righteous. That all that he's done for you. So Christ, he says, he, the all, he is either all in all, your Savior, your Lord, or he has nothing for you. You cannot combine merit and grace. If justification is by the law in any way, Christ's death is meaningless in history and meaningless to you personally. Let me, let me, let me illustrate that. Imagine... You come home, your house is on fire. Your house is on fire and you get all the kids out. And yet one of your neighbor comes over and says, I really love you. I want to show you how much I love you. And he goes running into an empty house, burning down, and he dies. Now imagine the same scenario. Your house is on fire and you got all your kids but one. And a neighbor comes and says, I want to show you I love you. And he runs into the burning building to save your only child. And he does, and he dies. That shows you how much he truly loved you. Is it meaningless? Or did Christ die in your place? If we could save ourselves, Christ's death is pointless and meaningless. If we realize we cannot save ourselves, Christ's death means everything to us. And we could spend the rest of our life in joyful service to him. The one who died the one who lived that perfect life, the one who died a grueling death, the one who rose from the grave, and by faith in him, you can have life in his name. And his life will be lived out through you. And that's exactly what this table is about. That's exactly what this table is about. This table is about just what Paul wrote in verse 20, who gave himself. He loved me and gave himself for me. Are you playing religion today? Are are you saying, yes, I believe up here, Jesus died, yes, he rose from the dead, I've been hearing it all my life. Has it made no impact in your life? Examine yourself. This communion table is to remember the broken body, the blood that was shed. And if you're a follower of Christ, and you know and believe and have trusted in Jesus, come to the table. If you're not a follower of Christ, if you've not repented of your sins and turned to Christ, if you've not received regeneration, new birth, if you're not trusted in the sufficiency of Christ alone, we're glad you're here. We want you here. But this is a table for the family of God. 
And we want to talk to you about how to become a child of God, how to, 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 to come to Jesus. We, we, we'd love to talk to you about that. But this table is for believers. So if you're a follower and you've pr- trusted in Christ, this table is for you. Let's pray. Father, as the band plays, as we sit quietly and just reflect that we are sinners, that we are not perfect, that we are and can be very selfish. We can and want to many times be seen for our own glory. And our lives are not always centered around you. God, I pray that you would grant us your spirit that would open our hearts and minds to see the beauty of Christ, his perfect life that he lived in obedience to you, his grueling death on the cross, taking our sin, our shame, out of love and nailed to the cross so that we can be forgiven. And then, Lord, the tomb is empty. We can be justified. We can be made right. We can have forgiveness of sin. We can be, have the, the righteousness of Christ given to us on our accounts by faith. And with that, Lord, we confess our sins, repent of our sins, but we celebrate the union we have with you, that we've been justified by faith alone. Help us, Lord, to, to, to know that truth, to worship you. And Father, may our life just reflect the reality of that truth that you have done for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.